this morning if we could ask a specific question of each of you. This question of, are you confident that you're doing what God has created you to do? Have you found the calling that God has placed on your life? And some in the room could say, no, I don't know. I'm sort of lost. I'm just floating through life without any clear direction on what God wants me to do, why God has created me in this time. And others of you would say, Seth, well, I, I, I know what God's called me to do, but I'm not certain I'm doing it very well. I'm not sure things are going the way that it should be. And quite frankly, I don't know how to respond to that well. Well, if you find yourself in either of those camps this morning, the good news is, is that this example, this record of Moses being called to the task that God had created him to do, gives us some insight on how we can discern the calling that God's given to us and then carry out that calling in a way that honors Him. But before we jump into this passage that was just read, I, there's certain information that you need to have in your head to really make sense of this passage. We're looking at the call of Moses, how God called Moses to be the deliverer or the instrument, if you will, that God would use to deliver God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Now hopefully no one here is confused to think that God's calling on your life might be to deliver God's people. No one is needed to do that anymore, right? As Moses physically delivered the people of God from Egyptian slavery, we know later on in the story of God's dealing on this world that He sent His own Son into this world to deliver His people not from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery to sin. And so God isn't calling or looking for any more deliverers of that nature. But we do have callings that God gives to us. We're not in the business of delivering people, but we are in the business of proclaiming what God has done. That's more of our role. And so before we jump into this passage and look at Moses' own calling, we need to be aware of what types of callings does God give to us today. We're not going to spend much time on this, but I want to talk just briefly about two spheres that God calls us to. The first sphere of calling, when we talk about God's call upon our life, is our collective and general calling as disciples of Jesus. So every Christian is called to be a follower of Jesus. They're called to be a disciple of Jesus. Those are just interchangeable terms. A follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. And a disciple of Jesus, as that disciple, that calling to be a follower of Christ, involves certain activities. I've summarized it this way. As a disciple of Jesus, we have a calling to worship Christ. As a disciple of Jesus, we have a calling to learn all there is to learn about Christ. And as a disciple of Jesus, we have a calling to proclaim what we know of Christ to believers and, unto believers and to unbelievers. That is a calling that when you become a Christian, you sign up for. 
right? And it is this collective general call that every Christian has. We're called to be followers of Jesus. We're called to be disciples of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus worship Christ. They learn all there is to learn about Christ. And they proclaim Christ to all types of people. Right? Everyone in this room, if you're a believer, you have that calling. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the call of God to you on your life, before He's concerned about what you're going to do with your life as far, of, as far as vocational, is He wants you to get it right that you're one called out of this world by God. And to participate in that, to become a Christian, you need to recognize that God created you. And because He created you, He has a right to tell you how to live, to rule over you. But the reality is every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth except the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has cast off God's rule of our life and said, I'm going to do it my way. I'm wiser. I, I, my way seems more enjoyable or more fun. I'm going to set my own destiny. And the Bible tells us that because of that rebellion, that, re, that rebellion against God's rule has earned us death. The earth is cursed, our bodies are cursed, and one day we all die as God's judgment. But the good news is, and though God could have left us in that state, He devised a deliverance plan, a rescue plan, by which He sent His own Son to take on human flesh, to suffer as a human, to experience the temptations of the human, and ultimately to live the life that we should have lived. He lived a perfect life under the rule of His Father. And then at the end of His life, He was killed. He didn't die because He had sinned. He died because you had sinned. And I had sinned. He bore our punishment on the cross. And then he was buried in a tomb and he was raised from the dead to show that his death fully atoned, fully paid for the debt we owe, the sin that we, the judgment we had incurred. And his resurrection from the dead shows that he has the authority over all things to give eternal life to whomever he wills. And the good news of that message, that is the heart of Christianity is that we have to respond to Christ's work by believing it, faith, and by repentance. By agreeing with God that we are rebels against Him. And trusting that only Christ's work in His life, in earning the righteousness we need to go to heaven, and in His death, paying and receiving the judgment that our sin deserves, that is the only way that we can be made right with our Creator. You're here and you're not a Christian. I would encourage you. That's the most important calling that you get. The call to be a Christian. If you have questions about that, I invite you to have a conversation with someone that maybe you know here. Or I'll be glad to talk with you after the service out at the information table. But if you're here and you've embraced that calling, with that calling to be a Christian is this calling, a general call, to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, where you're going to worship Christ, learn Christ, and proclaim Christ. And outside of that sphere, there is another discussion of calling. And this is our individual specific callings as disciples of Jesus. We're going to live as disciples of Jesus in these individual lives that God's called and created us to do. And those things are going to look very, very different one from another. Okay?
So we can think about how we have different familial callings or relational callings, right? Some people are called to live as disciples of Jesus in singleness, right? That's a calling, a glorious calling that God calls some people to. And other people, God calls them to marriage. And so they're going to live out as disciples of Jesus in the context of a marriage relationship. Some people are going to be called to be parents, and they're going to live as disciples of Jesus, worshiping Christ, learning Christ, and proclaiming Christ within the context not only as a spouse, but in the context of raising children. So there's familial callings, and that's going to be diverse among God's people. And we have different vocational callings. We're going to live out as disciples of Jesus who are worshiping Christ and learning Christ and proclaiming Christ. We're going to live that out, some of us, as educators, some of us as in the sphere of business, whether it's crunching numbers in finance or within insurance or within engineering, all different spheres of what we can use of our time in our life, our vocation. And God has created us and equipped us with personalities that fit those callings that He wants us to live out. Okay? So you'll notice that. God has ordered our lives in order for us to accomplish those specific plans. So when we talk about the call of God on our lives, we're talking about both of these spheres of calling. This general collective call all Christians share to be a disciple of Jesus, and this sphere of individual specific callings that are going to differ among God's people but provide a context of which we're going to live out this calling of a disciple of Jesus. Alright? So hopefully that, that helps you there in thinking through it. Alright, so those are the two spheres of calling. And then that gets us into this passage as we look at this God who extends this call to us. You have to remember that Moses at this point when he receives this call from God is 80 years old. Forty years earlier, he thought he was fulfilling God's calling to deliver God's people, but it didn't work out the way he planned. It wasn't according to time, God's timetable. Moses wasn't ready. The people of Israel weren't ready. And so God said, we're going to wait 40 years until we act upon what's taking place. But that's where the story picks up. Moses has been shepherding his father-in-law's sheep for 40 years in the area of Midian. And now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so we get the first insight in who is this God that calls us? And we recognize that He is a God who is above us, right? There is this 
separateness that's taking place. As Moses is trying to approach God in the bush, he's told to take off his sandals. The, the ground that he's on is holy ground. He hides his face to not look upon God because there was an understanding that to see God would mean that you would die because of the great gap and distance between creator and creature. And so God is making himself known here that the God who extends this call into our life is a God who is above us. That Yahweh is different from us. Theologians use the term transcendent, right? When speaking about how God is so different from us, they will say he is a transcendent being. He is beyond us, above us. But he's not just that. That part is true. But notice in verses 7 and 9. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And here's the phrase in verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Not only is God above us, but God is also among us. That is, Yahweh is present with us. And when theologians speak about God being present with us, they talk about His eminence. That He is an eminent being. He is knowable. There is an ability to have a relationship with this God. And oftentimes what happens is we either sort of push God into one camp or the other. And you can see this in the world religions of the world. World religions of the world will either have God as this distant being who is above all the fray of the earth. He sort of created those things and started the clock and it just runs on its own. But God's really not involved in the minute details of managing His creation. He's a distant father. Not emotionally invested in what's happening to His creation. Transcendent. Above us. Keep your distance. And then there's the side of His being among us, His eminence, and religions will talk about how God's in everything. If you watch Pocahontas by Disney, right? That's, that's a perfect expression of just a bad religion, right? Okay, so I'm not promoting that. But it's the idea that God is in everything, that He is among everything that's living or whatever, even the rocks. Right, So the, the, the reality is God and the, the, the true God of the Bible is presented as being both of those things. He is among us in a certain way, and He is also above us. There is a separation. And holding those things in balance is part of our calling in learning about who Christ is and living our life with both of those truths present with us. And we see that here, right? Moses is told, you know, take your shoes off. Moses hides his face. And yet later here we see that the Lord is hearing the cries of His people. He is seeing their oppression. He is going to come down to them to help deliver them out of their trouble. And ultimately, we learn later on that even though Moses had to hide his face, Moses will be spoken of as one who speaks to God face to face. Again, eminence and transcendence. So this God who calls us is both above us and He is among us. Now, with those two things, understanding these two spheres of calling, right? we have this general collective calling that all Christians have to be disciples of Jesus. Then, as disciples of Jesus, we have these individual specific callings that are going to vary from person to person. 
and understanding that the God who calls us into both of those spheres of callings is a God who is above us and He is among us. All right. So with that knowledge, we jump into the main sort of portion of this scripture as God continues His self-disclosure to Moses. And what I want to do here is point out to you three reservations. The reservations that we can have on embracing this God who is above us and among us call upon our lives. We're not always willing to just say, man, God's called me to do that. I'm excited. Uh, it's clear to me what He's doing, right? Sometimes it's not clear. And then even when there's clarity on what He's called us to do, there can be hesitancy to do what God has called us to do. And I want to help uncover why some we have that reservation to do so. So reservations to embracing God's call on our life. Well, the first reservation is that we are unsure of our identity. We are unsure of our identity. After God reveals Himself to Moses in this burning bush that doesn't burn up. I don't know why they call it the burning bush, because it, it is burning, but doesn't burn up. After He does this, He says that He's going to come down and deliver them there in verse 8. And then in verse 10, He says, Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But notice Moses' response here. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, what's going on here? Because Moses does this protest dance really five different times in this passage. He does it here in verse 11. He does it in verse 13 of chapter 3. He does it in verse 1 of chapter 4, verse 10 of chapter 4. And really in all of those moments, Moses is actually displaying the humility you ought to have, right? There's a difference between having confidence in doing what God calls you to do and having cockiness in what you're doing. And so Moses here rightly, I don't, there's nothing wrong with what he's saying and saying, who am I to do this? He protests, in, you know, he, he's, he's, he's rightfully acknowledging he's not, humanly speaking, fit for this task. He doesn't have the ability to do it. And there's really not a problem with that until you get to his final protest over in chapter 4, verse 13, where he says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. And we know this is a problem because in verse 14, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is, there, is that there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? And basically he capitulates and he lets Aaron sort of serve as a spokesman for Moses at this point. And so Moses is showing sort of this mixture of an appropriate humility, but also a hesitancy that is too much, that he shouldn't show, and therefore receives this rebuke from the Lord there in chapter 4. Now when Moses makes that statement, and he's sort of hesitant to take on this task fully himself, when he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? The way that we're tempted to respond to Moses, because we've been trained in 21st century self-help psychology, is to say, well, Moses, what are you doing? Of course, who else would be better? Look, just look deep within your own soul. You, you've got those resources there to, to make it happen. You've just got to believe in yourself, Moses. Cast out this self-doubt. 
You've got this. And then we would talk about, well, Moses, look, you, you were raised in the palace of Egypt. You know the ways of the Egyptians. Who better to go to speak to Pharaoh than someone that has been raised in that environment? You know how to mingle with these people. You speak their language. You understand their religion. Who's better to do it than you? And so we would, what we would have done is that we would have created an identity from Moses of trusting in himself. That he, he has all those resources himself to take care of the task. And the same is true for us. When we think about the calling that God's given to us, the task that He's placed before us, there can be reservation to embrace that because we're not sure who we are. Who am I to do this? And that is a good question to ask. Because our identity is the most important question we can, we can ask from a human perspective. Figuring out who are we? What's our history? Where's our place in this world? But the reality is, to answer our question of identity properly, we have to understand who God is. And when Moses says, who am I? God doesn't rattle off a couple of things that are standing out on Moses' resume. Notice what he says. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In verse 12, he said, that is, God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The answer to who am I is not something about Moses. It's something about the character and identity of God. Who am I to do this? God says, I'm with you. I'm going with you. This isn't about you, Moses. You're just a pawn in my hand to accomplish my purposes. I'm calling you to do it, but the reality is, I'm with you. That's the distinction. He doesn't build him up with self-help psychology. He builds him up with the presence of Almighty God is with you in this calling. And so one of the reservations that we can have it's not just being unsure of our identity, who are we to do this, but we can be unsure about God's identity. When God tells Moses, I'm going with you, and that's the information that Moses is going to have to pass on to the Israelites, because God isn't just calling Moses here, He's calling the whole nation of Israel to a calling to be his mouthpiece to the surrounding nations of who God is. They were, they were going to be delivered from Egypt to be a special people for God, to live in such a way that they would proclaim the excellencies of Yahweh. And so when Moses is not only called, he's also going to Israel to call them to a, be a, a special nation for Yahweh. They're going to want to know, okay, God's called us. Well, who is God? Because you've got to remember that these people have been in slavery for 430 years under Egyptian rule. These people are not instructed theologians. There's a lot of mixture and bad theology that they have. And so Moses says to him there in verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? They've forgotten. What shall I say to them? These people are going to be un they're going to have reservations about embracing this calling to leave Egypt under my leadership when I tell them what well, God sent me and they say well, God who? 
Who are you talking about? And so there's uncertainty about God's identity, and so therefore there's a reservation to embrace the calling God's given. And so Moses receives an answer from the Lord. God makes His identity known here. What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. You, know, you think about being in Moses' shoes here, right? He tells him back in verse, 13, verse 12, he's like, I'm going to deliver you, Moses. I'm going to let you do this. And my sign that it's going to happen is that you're going to worship on this mountain, right? The, the, the sign of promise is going to be after it's all over, right? I, I would have heard something right now that would help me with that. And then here he's like, I got to tell him a name. What's your name? Well, I am who I am. Some kind of Yoda speak, right? Like, what does that mean? I am who I am. You could also, matter of fact, the, the way that the Hebrew is here is that it includes all the tenses. I have been who I have been. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. You see, all that exists, I am the true self-defining person. That's what God says. He makes it clear that He is who He is. He is the sovereign Lord. That's His identity. He is the God above us who has all power over all things because He is who He is. There is none before Him and there is none after Him. There is nothing that has ever come into existence that did not come through His desire. And so therefore, the one that is sending Moses is the sovereign Lord who is a transcendent God. But he's not only that, he goes on to give another name. He says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord... Right? You'll notice here, there it's capital L-O-R-D. That's just the phrase Yahweh, I am who I am. Whenever you see that in the Bible, that's just Yahweh's name. I am who I am. It's translated Yahweh. And then we don't usually use that in English. Normally what they'll do is spell L-O-R-D in capital letters. They did that because they didn't want to make the mistake of accidentally taking the Lord's name in vain. So they created an entire new name, Adonai, to call him instead of Yahweh. Okay? So he says there, say this, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And he tells them, go gather the elders and tell them these things, that the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you to deliver you from Egyptian bondage. So we see that his name, I am who I am, depicting his sovereign power, that he is a God above all things. But he is not just this sovereign Lord who speaks in the burning bush and says, keep your distance. He is also the God of covenant. He is a covenant Lord. And that's indicated by the fact that he uses not just I am who I am, but he says, remember, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who makes relationships, who made relationships and promises to your forefathers. This reveals how God is among us, that He has this relationship. He has made a covenant in the past, and now He is being faithful to that promise. And that's what a covenant is. Right? When we think about humanly speaking, when, when God makes a covenant, 
The best illustration for us is probably when we think about a marriage relationship. A marriage is a covenant that we make with another human being. And in the heart of that covenant is a promise. Right? God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now he's making good on it. He's making good on the promise to give Abraham a descendant, a mighty nation, and a land that he's going to take them to. That's what he's promising here. And in a marriage ceremony, there is a promise that's made at the heart of that relationship. So a covenant contains a promise, but a covenant also serves as a contract, right? There's a legal binding that goes with this promise. And God does the likewise. Even though God isn't going to lie or renege on His promise, the reality is He's made a promise and then He goes beyond that to make an oath. And He seals that oath with the blood in, in Exodus, Exodus 24, Moses does it by killing a bull, getting the blood and sprinkling on the people, making a covenant, the legal binding contract. And of course the Lord Jesus in Luke 22 talks about how the cup that he's drinking with the disciples is in the blood of the new covenant. This new contract that God's making is sealed, not only a promise, but it's legally binding because God is sealing it with the blood of his own son. So contract at the heart of it is a promise. God's made promises here. He's keeping. He's made a contract, but it's not just this business transaction. There is a relational side to a covenant. There's a difference between a business contract and a covenant between God and His people and a covenant between a husband and a wife. And that means that a covenant binds people in relationship, right? A covenant, and because there's that binding in relationship, there is a change in identity. So, for example, before someone is married, they're one thing, and after that marriage ceremony, they're another. They were not a husband before, but because they've had a covenant that's bound them in relationship to this woman, now they've taken on a new identity. They are also husband now. And the same is true for the wife. They take on a new calling, a new role. This is important to see because God isn't just this sovereign power who's created all things and can do these magic tricks of speaking out of a bush without burning. That's a great powerful thing. We're glad God can do that, but He's also one who is pursuing covenant. He wants relationships with His people, and He's made that promise. He's bound in contract to it, and because of that rela the relational nature of it, it changes the identity of those who make that relationship with God. So that's as important because it goes back to when we're unsure of our identity, who am I? Well, I am someone that is in covenant relationship with the sovereign Lord of the universe. And not everyone has that. That's a privileged identity. So we see that we can be reserved in embracing God's calling upon our lives because we're unsure about our own identity, who am I? We're unsure about God's identity. Who is this God that's calling me to do it? And here he answers, I am the God above you as sovereign Lord and I'm the God among you as the covenant Lord who makes relationship with his people. You see, because God is not constrained by others, He is sovereign Lord, He is above us, we can be sure that He can deliver. And because God is constrained by Himself, He's made covenant with us, 
we can be sure that He will deliver. No one outside of God can prevent Him from helping fulfill our callings that He's called us to do, because He's sovereign Lord. And nothing is going to stop God from being faithful as our God who loves us and cares for us in relationship to stop us, because He's committed Himself to us. There's no change within God Himself, and there is no threat to God outside of Himself. That's why understanding His identity as both Sovereign Lord and Covenant Lord is essential for overcoming this reservation of embracing the calling God has given to us. So He reveals Himself. And He tells basically, this information I revealed to you, Moses, you need to go and you need to go share that with God's people so they can embrace this calling that I'm given to them to be a special nation, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, to proclaim the excellencies of my name. But there's a third reservation. Even after all this takes place, and he goes over it and over it and over it again, and he explains what he's going to do, and he promises that Moses he's going to do it. He's going to deliver Egypt out of, with his mighty hand, and he's going to allow the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians. We come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. All right? So it's like, Who am I? I'm going to be with you, Moses. You're one that has covenant relationship with this God who can speak from the burning bush. Sovereign Lord, covenant God. I'm with you. Then he goes on to reveal even more of who he is and his identity. By, this, by naming himself. Sovereign Lord, I am who I am. Covenant Lord, I'm the God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Moses is like, okay, you're going to be with me. And you've made your name clear. But then what happens if I show up and they say, God really didn't appear to you. You've just made this up. So he's unsure of his reception. How are the people going to receive him? And so as a result, he has a reservation to embrace the call that God's calling him to. And so the Lord assures him, he says, what's in your hand? He says, a staff. And he says, throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the, he th and, and when he threw his staff on the ground, guess what happened? It became a snake. And then when Moses picked it back up, it turned back into a staff, right? And then he tells him another trick. He's like, Moses, take your hand and stick it in your coat. And when you pull it out, he pulls it out. It's, it's got leprosy on it, right? So he, he has this ability to show I can have these diseases at one moment, pull it out, and it's not there. And even if that doesn't work, he goes on to tell him another sign that you can take blood from the, you can take water from the Nile and the ability to turn it into blood. And so basically he gives him here three party tricks that he can do to show, look, can any of you do this? Okay, no. So I know God's name, and I, I've been given this information from God that I can prove that I am sent by God. I've not just sort of been dehydrated out there in the deserts of Midian and made this stuff up. And I'm not quite frankly, I would want to know those things too if someone came to me and said God appeared to him in a burning bush, right? So we understand that. Moses gives, God gives Moses these three-party tricks, and then guess what happens there in verse 13? Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I still don't like this calling that you've given to me. I've expressed reservation about my identity. Who am I to do it? I've expressed reservation because we're not sure who you are. Who are we to say who sent? Now that I know who your name is, there's still the question of how I'll be received by other people. And then in response to this, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, 
O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken in your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses is concerned that with his inability to speak, which actually isn't a concern. We know this through the rest of the scripture. You read that. Moses doesn't have a trouble with this. He's just complaining about it. So he, he's troubled speaking. God says, look, Moses, I made your mouth. It'll perform what I need to perform because I've called you to this task. I'm the sovereign Lord. I had the power to do it, and I'm the covenant Lord. I'm going to be with your mouth, relationally, making it happen. And then he's worried about, well, how are the people going to hear me? And, and, Mo, and God says, who makes man deaf? Who made his ears? Who makes man hear? It's me. Don't be concerned about your reception. Focus on the calling that I've given to you and confidently pursue God's call because you know I stand with you. That's why. Now think about us. Right? That's what he's telling Moses. I've got a calling. You're going to be my spokesperson. You're going to be my instrument to deliver the people out of bondage. And you're going to be able to do it because I'm with you. That's who you are, Moses. And I'm, I, as the sovereign Lord and as covenant Lord, will back you in doing this. And your reception is going to be mixed. Pharaoh's not going to listen. And the Israelites ultimately will, and you will worship me on this mountain. And we see that in Exodus chapter 19. Happens. Now, think about your own calling. This calling to be a disciple of Jesus. And to be a disciple of Jesus in your individual specific callings. You may be thinking this morning, said, I, it, this parenting thing is it's beyond me. I'm at my last end. I, I don't know what else to do. Send someone else. But God's not going to send someone else. He's heard your cries, and He's going to come down. And He's called you to parent your children. He's called you to love your spouse. He's called you to be that engineer. He's called you to worship Him and to learn of Him and to proclaim Him to other people in the spheres of your influence. He's not called me to live your life. He's not called someone else to live your life. He's called you. And if you are certain of His calling, He's called you to be a disciple, and you're certain of the, the relationships that He's put you in and the vocational calling that He's given to you, you need to confidently look at that calling and say, who am I to do this? I am someone that God is with in this task. God's called me to it. And the one who has called me is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is who He is. That means He has all the power necessary to empower me to fulfill the calling He's given to me. 
And He's not just some distant power source. He is a covenant Lord. He has made promise to me to be with me, to love me, to guide me, to be my God as I am His person and we are as His people. He's not going to forsake us. He's not going to hang us out. He's going to be there. And Seth, why, how well am I going to do with this calling? Are the people going to listen when I speak about Christ? Are my kids going to listen? Is my spouse going to listen? Are, are, when I go about doing my work, am I going to, to receive the accolades that I hope I would receive? Am I going to receive the pats on the back that I hope I would receive? Maybe, maybe good, maybe bad. I can't predict the reception that you will have. And the reality is God doesn't call us to do that. I can't predict how people would receive this message this morning, right? But I know God's called me to be here this morning to deliver it despite how it's received. And I entrust the reception of that message to God Himself. Just as you fulfill your callings, God's not going to tell you how it's all going to work out. You're just called to do it. And whatever God needs to come about, He knows your mouth, He knows your mind, He's made it, and He will empower you to speak or to write or to think through a problem that needs to be thought through in the way it needs to be thought through. Our hardest task is simply trusting God to do that. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to examine the callings God's given to you and then confidently pursue God's call on your life because He stands with you. Not because you've got what it takes. Not because you, you, if you, you can achieve the impossible. But because God stands by you. As one person put it, you can walk through life with me. You can base your sense of self on your knowledge of me. Find your confidence and your worth in knowing that I, Yahweh, am there for you each step of the way as you fulfill your calling. You can know that I am with you and your achievements and your failures will not affect your status as one with whom Yahweh dwells. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the confidence that we as your people can have as we fulfill the callings that you've put on our lives. Father, help us to not shrink back from this calling to be faithful followers of Christ, to be a people who worship Christ well, who are diligently learning all that we can about Christ and what He has commanded us, and that we would be faithful proclaimers of Christ to believers and to unbelievers. As we fulfill that calling to be your disciples in these individual callings, in singleness, in marriage, in parenting, in the various vocations that you give us in this life, give us the confidence to enter into those things, to, to work diligently and to work hard because we know you're with us. And that whether we do well or whether we do bad, our status before you is not affected. You love us. You remain with us. 
even into eternity. Let us live with that confidence and not the cockiness that comes from self-confidence and dishonors you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.